Good morning, Pastor. Let's just say, throughout the Bible, there's a number of occasions where we hear God referred to as something that when you do it for the first time in a sentence, it just doesn't make any sense grammatically. And I know all about it doesn't make sense grammatically because if you've seen my year nine report card, that would confirm that. Not to mention the fact that I don't know how it's blue. <laughs> And that name that God uses for himself, we see revealed for the first time way back in the Old Testament. If you want to just quickly have a look at Exodus chapter 3. In uh, Exodus chapter 3, we go up here to Moses in the burning bush. You know the story well, don't we? And when God appears, he says to Moses, I have seen and heard my people crying out in Egypt in slavery under Pharaoh's rule. And you are going to be the guy who goes in prison for me. And Moses absolutely freaks out. He's so concerned about what he's going to do. So in Exodus 3, just from verse 13, just a couple of verses from verse 13, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you have to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. When God announced himself as I am, he's indicating to us that he is eternal, he always was, he's pre-existing. He had no beginning, he's going to have no end. He's fully complete, he'll never change, he was not created. It's a huge couple of words, I am. And when he says, I am who I am, it's an absolute statement. It's a statement of fact, whether it's believed or not by the listener. He's not standing there and waiting for somebody else's second opinion. They're not going to set up a debate to debate this. He's here by identifying himself as to who he is. There's a number of different names that are used for God in the Bible, which are used usually according to what part of the character of God uh, we're looking at at the time. Adonai, Lord, Master. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace, and so on. But the most frequently used word for God is the word Yahweh. And it's used, get this, six and a half thousand, more than six and a half thousand times. In the Old Testament, I freaked out when I saw that. And when it's translated, it's actually, I am who I am. And it's interesting we say Yahweh, and when we spell it, it's got an A and an E, we spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H. But the reality is, it's only four consonants, Y, H, W, and H. And they've actually lost how the pronunciation is. And the Jews back in the third century were so concerned about that that they stopped using this name for God in fear that they might be breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Any idea which one that might be? That's one. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Exodus 27. This name, I am, can be found in a number of different places in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. Uh, the book of uh, Isaiah is loaded with I am's. So you'll find the majority of them between uh, chapters 40 and chapters 55. Uh, things like, I, I am, he blots out your transgressions for my sake. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am He who comforts you. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. 
And the theme in these chapters is the identity of God. He's identifying himself as us. And he makes these statements about himself. And then to echo things perfectly and tie this together in the New Testament, Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of John, makes many I am statements to clearly show us his identity, which matches with his Father's identity. And there's this whole thing going on the whole time of Jesus identifying with his Father and explaining that he and the Father are one. And as we make our way through the Gospel of John in the New Testament over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven major I am statements that Jesus made referring to himself. These are not everyday I am statements like I am going to walk, I'm heading home to see, I'm going to get a text of disciples by the lake, that type of deal. And it's not like Muhammad Ali saying, I am the greatest, which was self-confessed, certainly was, but it wasn't true. In fact, statistically, it's not true. But the mantra is so often that people started to say to themselves, have you said to somebody about my age, so who was the greatest boxer? Maybe it would be Muhammad Ali. It's not true. And he also obviously didn't claim to be God. These statements that Jesus makes in John, they're metaphorical from what they say. It's a bit of a picture, isn't it? I am the door, the true vine, I'm the bread of life, I'm the good shepherd, etc. But they are very precise and they are very absolute in what they mean. And this upsets a few people. In many cases when uh, we hear these things, we're going to see Jesus uh, maybe standing in the middle of a religious festival or some kind of personal crisis, we'll see how some of these statements line up with where he actually is at that time. Uh, there's statements that point us to his deity, uh, the fact that he is God, ego in man, I am. And this morning we're going to land on one of the most well-known verses of Scripture, a uh, wonderful verse to the believer, but to the world and how their thinking is now, an outlandish, how dare you even suggest it, statement. A verse that, if its claims are true for us, it must radically change the shape of our lives, how we live, and cause us to open our eyes to see how big, how powerful, and how majestic our God is. Did I mention holy? Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes this morning to see again how big you are? And to help us to look at these claims of Jesus. Lord God, and to follow him, no matter what the cost of God. We pray that you would speak to us in the future this morning, that you would come to us and teach us what we need to hear this morning through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can you turn your Bibles and your attention to John chapter 13? Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background before we read. You know that before we even get to this upper room discourse, as it's called, which is another way of saying Jesus upstairs with the disciples having a, a chat together, in this upper room discourse, and this is just the night before his betrayal, and we know at this stage the Jewish leaders, they absolutely have an image of Jesus. They cannot stand him. He's really bugging them. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like the fact that people follow him around in droves and hang on every single word that he's saying. And they don't like the fact that their attention has been taken away from them and on to him. And they have been watching him like a hawk. They can't deny his miracles because people are praising God for that, but they are looking for every possible opportunity to catch him out, accuse him, get arrested, and then to kill him. In chapter 8 of John, he really gets the Jewish leaders' backs up. He hits and wounds them with a couple of statements of absolute truth about himself, and then right at the end, he hits them with two word ballistic insults just to finish him right off. And so in John 8, I'm going to quickly whip down and I'll do that. John chapter 8 and verses 53 to 59. So this is Jesus talking uh, to the Jews. Chapter 8, verses 53 to 59. 
And they say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father who you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You know, I'm 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone with Jesus himself and slipped away upon the temple grounds. Why are they so upset here? What's all the anger about? Well, the reality is they know the scriptures very, very well indeed. They know how to read the scriptures very, very well indeed. But all the people around, these are the ones who should have seen that this is the Messiah. That the prophecies have been fulfilled right before their very eyes. And the miracles that Jesus was performing, no, they rejected him. And when Jesus uses these two words, ego and may, I am, they immediately associate with the language of Yahweh. And they're outraged that he's using these words that are saying and claiming that he is God. To them, this is absolute blasphemy of the highest degree. So we arrive at chapter 13 in John, and Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples just before the time of this Passover feast. So what's going on in the room? I'm going to go through the walk through and have a bit of And keep in mind as we walk through the door here that over the last 30 years or so, these men have been following Jesus and they've been learning his teaching and example. They place their hopes in him as the Messiah, the promised deliverer to the Jews, but they're still not quite sure how this deliverance is going to be accomplished. They're still looking at the political side of things. We would know that the Jews were looking for the Messiah to come to save them from the Romans, basically, from the, uh, from the tyranny of the Romans there too. But of course, Jesus had other things in mind. So we're in the other room, and Jesus is in an act of servanthood, and he continues to teach all the way to his death. He just watched the disciples speak. He's predicted his betrayal, and Judas, even though he, uh, the rest of the disciples don't really understand what's going on at the stage of the game, well, he's leaving now to betray Jesus to the Jewish leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Trading them some man for 30 pieces of silver. And as Judas closes the door behind him and heads out into the darkness of the night, very appropriate, Jesus now turns his attention to the 11 disciples that are still in that room. He starts to talk to them about what's ahead of them and about home. Let's read from verses 31 in chapter 31. When he was gone, Jesus. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. What is this glory? The glory has come, and that glory is going to be what happens at the cross. Did you notice that um, Jesus makes no mention of Judas? He doesn't say that rotten Judas betrayer. And he doesn't make any mention also of the pain and suffering that he's going to go through, no. Instead, what happens here? Instead, with victory and triumph, he announces that the hour of his glory has arrived. In fact, he repeats the word glorify five times in two uh, verses. But not only does he speak that way, how about the tense that he's using there too? How about the tense he's using? 
What is it? It's actually past tense. In other words, it's a done deal. Prophecy will be fulfilled, and the way for man to have a restored relationship with God will be achieved by his sacrifice at the cross that was needed to appease the wrath of God who would not tolerate sin. So verse 33, and now he softens his tone because he's got a bunch of disciples who love him. He loves them very, very much. And so this is the way he speaks to them. My children. Is that what it says in your Bible? I had a look to see what the actual words are. You know what it actually says? The only time it said in the New Testament, my little children. The real endearing way that he starts, my little children. I will be with you only a little longer. I'm sure the ears prick up. But in many ways, you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. And you command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another still in the greatest hands for us too, that people know who we belong to by our love for one another. But you see, Peter still got his mind back a few sentences. He heard a bit about the command and love one another, I'm sure, but I think his mind is still back there because he says, Lord, in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. What's that mean? What's he actually saying here? Is he going to some place too hard to get through the scrub so you can't find out that you will find him later? What's actually going on here? So he's not talking about a place here. He's actually talking about the fact that he's to go to the cross and then to the grave. And then on the third day, he'll rise again. Nobody, nobody can follow him through that journey. He's the only one who is qualified to lay his life down for the sins of the world in this incredible act of love that the Father has done for us in giving us His Son. So back to verse 37, that Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I can already hear some of you going, you have a life, Peter. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, it was only three times. You know what he actually meant when he said that? He really had that in mind that he would follow him everywhere. Not with Judas. Judas went out and planned. He had it all premeditated as to what he was going to do. With Peter, it's just like us, isn't it? Just like us. Yes, Lord, I will do this. Yes, Lord, I will do that. We all do it, don't we? We know different. Let's go to verse uh, chapter 14. And again, Jesus is comforting his disciples. Keep in mind here, he's comforting his disciples. But he knows what he's about to go through. He knows the pain and suffering that he's going to go through physically. But even worse than that, the separation from his father, which is something that we can never, ever understand. It's not possible for humans to understand what that suffering would be like. So he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So what's the remedy he's given for a troubled heart? Same thing that he gives to us, isn't it? Trust in me. And there are a number of us here with troubled hearts over a number of issues, whether it be physical things or whether it be issues that people don't even know about. And he asks us here, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in them and encourage you. And with that, it's a good thing to know 
that in times of trial, uncertainty, we can still trust in Him. And then he goes on, in my father's house are many rooms, but we're not so. I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, and you all, that you also may be where I am. Is Jesus going to heaven with a bunch of nails and hands and things to prepare a place and build a few extra rooms? Well done, maybe move a few mountains that aren't quite in the creation that he was thinking about in the first place. No. It is at the cross again. And through the resurrection that the preparation is being made to get us home. To get us home. That's where he wants us to Nathan said something to me when we, just a couple of days ago. We were talking through these verses, and Nathan said, You know what? The only kind of nails that can be used are the ones belonging to the Roman soldiers that they'll drive nails to the hands and feet of Jesus that they hang him on the cross for our ultimate salvation. That's true. Heaven is there and he prepares a place by going to the cross. And then we see that not only does he tell all these things, but then he comforts them again by assuring them that he will come back and take his people to be with him. And he was talking about his second coming. Take a look at verse 4 and 5. You know the way to the place where I'm going, said Jesus. And then he just talks. Everybody goes, oh, he Don't give him such a hard time. Don't give him such a hard time. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, Thomas, I figured, just said what everybody else was thinking. I think he went to that lecture where they say there's no dumb questions, he took that on board. Because I would have, I would have done exactly what Thomas would have done. Because I reckon the rest are all sitting up. But he asked that. He's always asking dumb things. No, he's actually honest. And he didn't know. So he just said, how can we know the, know the way? And so Jesus then come to this statement. This is huge. It's bigger than you think. Jesus answered, I am. Remember what that, those two words mean. I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that would be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And so he's made the statement now, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And that's how I've said a lot of people back then. It's I've said a lot of people now as well. He doesn't say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And some will come to the Father by me, but if you know another good philosophy, another good person, oh, that's fine as well. He doesn't say that. Just like the absolute statements of Yahweh back in Isaiah, who refers to himself as I am. Jesus echoes this same forever message and powerful message about his identity, who he is, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. You see, no longer is the way of God to keep the law or to obey the Ten Commandments, but rather the way is by a person. By a person in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who John the Baptist looked at as, as he came towards us. One of my favourite pictures in the whole Bible is the old Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew who he 
wants. Jesus, the person Jesus, God's only son, was now the way. Not the law. In fact, we're told that Jesus came to, to fulfill the law. How wonderful is that? How this all knits together. So let's have a brief look at the, um, the words that Jesus used in that I am statement. All three of them are actually basic concepts of the Jewish religion, way, truth, and life. So the disciples are pretty familiar with these words that Jesus used. Many of you know that the Christians were first called Christians at a place called Antioch. That's right. But before Antioch, they were also referred to as something else too. They were followers of the And in Acts 27, verse 4, the Apostle Paul, talking about his life prior to his encounter with uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus, he says how he persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The way. The Jews themselves read the scriptures about the way in which men must walk and the ways of God. Uh, they knew that God had said to Moses, You are to walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. They were given these instructions. But no longer do we have instructions. We have a person in Jesus. Psalm 27 told them, Teach me your way, O Lord. So the Jews knew quite a bit about the way of God and how they were to walk with him. But here is Jesus saying, I am the way. Suppose you can see, right? So you can. You land on an aeroplane, you get out and you need to get somewhere, but you, um, you're unfamiliar with it. And so you search at somebody to give you some directions. And so they say something like this to you. Okay, there's not mate. Okay, the first street on the right and the second on the left, cross over the Grand Back Bridge, which is just before the shelf survey, hang a Huey, just after the states will be on the left, then turn down the second street up the map, it's straight past the footy ground, take the third exit at that roundabout with the three young trees, you write this here, right? Get all that? Well, I just discarded it. What part was that? A bit after, okay, this is not mine. I'd be lost if I got halfway to that. But what happens here? What would happen if you said to me, I'll take it there? Hmm, different story. Then to me, this person becomes the way, and I can't miss where I'm going. And that's what Jesus does for the believer, for encouraging those who don't know him. This is what he does for the believer. He not only gives advice and directions, because he does it through the word, but he leads and strengthens us and guides us personally every day by his Holy Spirit, which lives in us. He is the way. And following him will lead us home to our Father when our work on earth here is done. He is the way and the truth. I can't need an apology before I get on any further here because. I'm quite passionate about some of these things I'm about to speak to you about, and it, it drives me crazy. And so I finished up as I was writing, I look back at the I feel like a blogger or something like that here too, so apologies in advance for that too. Jesus claims in this I am statement uh, that uh, not only that he is the way, but he's also truth. And there's no question again about what he's saying about himself here. The language is very, very clear uh, indeed. And again, it's mirroring his father. You know, when it comes to absolute truth, the world is rapidly saying, yeah, we don't want it. And although I occasionally get really, really churned up inside, I really should not be surprised that this is the case. There's always some new term. You notice there's always some new term coming, but they've changed the word slightly. Everything's sort of 
twist it around a little bit as it is. The last one that I heard was the one that's probably confused me more than anything. And I think it was one of Trump's people in the US when something had happened and then she started talking about the alternative facts. Is there an alternative? And I actually, I just didn't get that at all. But the world is twisting all of these things around. Have you noticed that with language? It's interesting, isn't it? We're surrounded with that. The good thing is, when I get shut up about something, I have this amazing wife who comes to me and says, John, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> because when all this rubbish is going on, we have to remind each other as a congregation. As those who belong to Christ, that Jesus is coming back and things will be made well when he does. So, do you want to hear what the word of the year was in 2016? Ready for this? After much discussion, after much discussion, debate and research, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year 2016 is post-truth. Post-truth, an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, truth is whatever you want it to be. It's about your personal belief or if it appeals to you emotionally. It actually eradicates absolute truth. We're not interested in absolute truth. And when we think of the statements that we're looking at here, uh-oh, somebody's not going to like these statements. Truth has been turned on its head in our postmodern world. Uh, you're now criticised, and some of you will notice this, you criticise if you suggest something is absolutely true, unless, of course, something that the world is trying to shove down our throat. The modern culture is trying to constantly ram it down our throat and tell us that it is true to the point where people are made to feel guilty if they don't agree, and so they often swim that way out of fear of being rejected, or just weakness, or just so much good on it for so long, okay, okay, okay. And when it is rammed down your throat, have a look at the things that are being rammed in our throat, and I can almost guarantee every time there will be something that is totally opposed to what God's Word says. Have you noticed that? Not so long ago, it seemed like you could have an argument, and um, I'd sit with somebody and argue things that might even be that I'm trying to share my faith with them, and we would argue from backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, and at the end we might have to say, hey, we just have to agree to disagree. And you can't do that anymore. Have you noticed that? It just seems to be no way to be able to disagree. Because now you're either non-inclusive or you're a bigot, or the one that really thought about where you're a hater. Notice the word that word hate they're using if you don't agree with a particular uh, view. And not only are you a hater, but you must be silenced as well. There's a minister, I was reading a, a blog from a guy who's a minister of the church, and that's um, made me very sad. And the topic was, is there only one way to go? And you know what he wrote? I haven't heard this expression before. He wrote that not only is it wrong to think that the way, uh, uh, sorry, not only is it wrong to think that way, but that the people that held this view were being spiritually racist. <laughs> we laugh, and I don't know why we laugh, but this is what's going on. This is in the church. The world don't have to say this. This is what's going on in the church. Truth we're finding in God's word is now so often either ignored, dismissed, or twisted from its original original context to mean something completely different from what it intended to say. And as I said, that's within the church. People now 
And it's interesting, we've had people come to this church and they have said, oh, we're just trying to find a church that teaches the Word of God. That's scary. You see, what's going on is people will gather around selective teaching so that the teaching is, as Second Timothy tells us about, can hear exactly what they want to hear and nothing else. So many are not wanting to hear the truths contained in statements like the one we're looking at today because it may interfere with a comfortable life where they have God packaged in this little box in this corner over here where he can't disturb them and he certainly can't challenge them. People do not want to hear the absolute truth of God and there's a challenge with that and we'll talk to you about that in a minute. The thing is, it doesn't make any difference to God. It does not change the fact that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, that that is absolute truth and fact. One of the biggest fears that many Christians have got these days, and you will have seen this too, and sometimes we've got to be careful not to slip into this ourselves, is that we don't like to be seen out of harmony with the world. See, how one Embrace. The reality is, when we're not in harmony with the world, that should be an encouragement to us to know that we're actually following Christ. Please, brothers, sisters, do not feel that you need to be in harmony with the world because we are not of this world. And when these things come at you or when your spirit says no, hold fast to what the gospel is saying because then you can be encouraged to know that you are following Christ because there's going to be a cost alongside with that. I'm going to remind us of what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, uh, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Expect that. It's not going to be nice. This is not a lovely day sermon. It's going to be difficult. And then Romans 12, too, has some really good words for us. Do not be conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The true in He is the way, He is the truth, and He's the life. Jesus had just been telling His disciples about His impending death, and now in the sake He's telling them that He and He alone is the source of life. I am the life. I am. I am. The deliverance that he was about to provide as we mentioned before wasn't going to be a political style deliverance where he was going to overrun the, the, um, the Romans as the Jews were helping the, this is what the Messiah was going to do. It was far bigger and far, 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 far more wonderful than trampling on a nation. He was about to provide true deliverance from a life of bondage to sin and death to a life of freedom in eternity with the Father which he offers for all who believe in him. If you're not here today, I'm sorry if you are If you're not here today, you should have sorry. <laughs> if you're here today, you do not know him it's for all people that will believe in him. And he was going to achieve this through his work on the cross. If this is new to you and you're hearing this crossing and you're hearing these things, you still need to understand and talk about that when we're done. I'm going to reiterate things over and over again. It's important for us even to know them to hear these things over and over again. We remember that just before Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he said, What do you say? I am the resurrection. I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though he was dead, yet shall he live. 
And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. He is the life of souls. I love this one. He is the life by whose life in his spirit the dead in sin come alive and are set free. Set free. That's a wonderful thought. A wonderful thought. Listen to Rabbi Zacharias the other night. He said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. I thought, how true is that? People who are dead in the sin can come alive through the work of Christ on the cross. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. But a wonderful reality for those who repent of this and believe in the same grace of Jesus. It's free for those who believe. One of the challenges to witnessing that we're going to have now in this postmodern uh, world, this world of uh, truth is relative. It actually is invading the lives of those in society all the way through, isn't it? Whether people want it to be or not, they eventually cave in to the strength of bearing on their shoulders. And it even comes to those around us, and, uh, including many that we love and in our family too. But some of our conversations are changing as society is telling us what we should be thinking. It's all over the radio, it's all over YouTube, Facebook, we see all the blogs um, that are going on time and time again. Every time a rock star or a musician or a or an actor opens their mouth, out comes again. And making them far more popular because they can say whatever they want and everybody's going to get on their bandwagon because somehow they believe they're famous. And just like Christians sharing the gospel, as we need to be doing even more so in this time to get exposed to Christ's return, that as we do that to share the gospel with the lost, it's like the world is preaching its message loud and strong and gathering more believers every day as well as gathering many Christians who are not grounded in their faith. And I have to encourage us again here, if you belong to Christ, you need to be in the Word of God, to be grounded in His Word, otherwise you will run that danger of slipping away from Him. So we gather together to encourage each other with these words. To those who are children and teenagers, you're going to be dealing with this situation daily, the conflict with what the world is saying. What are you going to do? How are we as a church? It's a challenge for us, a challenging how are we going to deal with this so that people can be strong in Jesus in this time when nobody wants to know anything that is absolute and he is? The big question is, are we willing to hold fast to the truth, the statements made by our Lord and Savior, or will we succumb to the pressure of this lost world? That's who we're coming to. We're coming to a hopeless world that gives us nothing. There is no hope to battle as believers who are going to already be shouted down with explicit statements that we make when we talk about Jesus, we're not going to compromise on that. As I was listening to Ravi, he was saying how different it is to witness in this postmodern world. This is almost a, we need a workshop on this sort of stuff. I just want to tell you that I'm just starting to get myself, and I want to learn myself to support for us. He said how different it is to witness to people in this postmodern world because an absolute statement to them about God means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Unless, and it can happen by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit uh, convicts them to reveal the truth. Because many of us can hear absolute statement that your truth is, man, that's fine. That's wonderful for you. And I have my, my truth as well. That's wonderful. Whereas once upon a time they would have started a group, but it's totally different now. So, how do we witness to somebody who says, oh, that's not what you want? It's going to be difficult, isn't it? There's going to be some skills that we're going to need to teach, to learn together. So that our world, 
we've been bombarded with it, we hear it often. What he was saying was, I don't think this is great. His idea was that um, we need to begin our conversations with these people by asking why they believe in what they believe. Isn't that a great way to start? Ask them why they believe what they believe, because then you have a starting point to start to talk about it. And he gave the example of a woman who's first uh, ordained um, Buddhist something, I can't think what it was, the first woman. And when he got to speak to her, he said he didn't even mention Jesus for the first three hours of the conversation. But he said to her, she said, I and to reach Nirvana, I have to give up all things that I have. And he said, No, what you're saying is that you're asking me to give up my wife and my children for this. And she started to cry and she said, I still struggle with this. It's a lost world. They have nothing. These things are false, they are untrue. But we need to learn how to be talking to people because it won't be Buddhism, it will be some other thing that we believe here as well. We just had a, a young guy stay at the house for a month with us and we loved him. Paid him, fantastic guy. 24 years out later, just arrived at our doorstep and knew he was coming because he had a job here four weeks as a physio. Hadn't done any physio uh, since he qualified 18 months before that. He'd been travelling around Southeast Asia on his push bike for a couple of months. But what a guy! Not interested in Facebook. Took himself off the internet so he can get involved in that. That does not watch TV. Cooked all his own food. Uh, caught him one night out, joining in our backyard, looking up at the stars. He had an app so that he could match up with all of the different constellations were as well. Tremendous amount of talk to a thinker. Watching lots of documentaries to understand him. You know what? He read postmodernism. And it was so hard for Farina and I because he was open to conversations as well. All the time we could talk about God, we went through the gospel with him, we explained things to him, we had questions, we asked those, and he constantly had a smile. That's right. And he said to us over and over again, we did love him very much, and we're still praying for him now. But as he was leaving, There were tears because uh, we got on with him so well and it had been more than a relationship with him. And I said to him, Can I pray for you? He said, Sure. And he started heading down the steps. I said, No, now. He said, Okay, that'd be good. And so I prayed for him and then I had to stop him and say, Hey, I just need to let you know. He said to me a couple of days ago that you are secure in the things that you believe and you're happy with that and you feel secure in your life and I just tell you that about Jesus that is the most dangerous position that any person can be in and can I encourage you not to go looking for why there is no God which is what a lot of people do but rather to search for why he is there and what he can do Jesus is the sinner's way to the Father and to home. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He died in our place when we deserved death. He stands before God the Father as our advocate. Come on. So, When the time comes, 
will arise. And Jesus says, Father, let me present to you with great joy, Lil. She has repented of her sin. She believed in me. My blood shed for her on the cross. And that has washed her white and snow. And it is such great joy, Father, that I say that she's not guilty. And the Father says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me. I am the heart that I say I am and I am the That's right. Father, you are the great I am. You are the mighty God. There is no one like And Father, you provide a way out, a way from our sin, Lord God, that our sins can be forgiven through what Christ has done on the cross for us in appeasing your wrath so that we can have a right relationship with the Father and go home to be with Him when our work on earth here is done. Father, we praise you and thank you that that is absolute truth. Thank mm-hmm. you.